This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will be a question session reviewing multiple choice questions related to sternoclavicular dislocation and adult pyogenic vertebral osteomyelitis, which are two topics that we covered this past week on the podcast. So let's get right into it. We'll start with sternoclavicular dislocation. And the first question reads, Which of the following surgical devices employed for stabilization of the sternoclavicular joint is associated with the highest incidence of life-threatening complications? And the choices are 1. Percutaneous pins, 2. Cannulated screws, 3. Cerclage wire, 4. Balser plate, and 5. AO locking plate. So numerous reports have documented serious complications including death from migration of intact or broken Kirshner wires or Steinman pins into hilar structures such as the heart, pulmonary artery, and the aorta. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Percutaneous pins. Moving on to the next question. A 33-year-old female is diagnosed with spontaneous atraumatic subluxation of the sternoclavicular joint. She notes mild intermittent pain and a small amount of prominence to that area. She is noted to have 6 points out of a possible 9 points on the Baton-Horan scale. What is the most appropriate treatment at this time? And the choices are 1. Observation 2. Figure of 8 brace for 6 weeks followed by progressive physical therapy 3. Resection arthroplasty of the sternoclavicular joint 4. Sternoclavicular and costoclavicular ligament reconstruction and 5. Sternoclavicular arthrodesis So spontaneous atraumatic subluxation of the sternoclavicular joint is a rare condition and is generally associated with ligamentous laxity. A score of 5 or more on the 9-point Baton-Horan scale defines joint hypermobility. The treatment for spontaneous atraumatic subluxation of the sternoclavicular joint is observation. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Observation. Higginbotham et al. reported that spontaneous atraumatic anterior subluxation of the sternoclavicular joint may occur during overhead elevation of the arm. The majority of cases are not painful, and the subluxation usually reduces with lowering of the arm. Surgery is rarely indicated. Non-surgical management, including patient education of the benign nature of the condition, is recommended. Rockwood et al. reviewed a series of 37 patients with this condition and noted that at an average follow-up of 8 years, the 29 patients who were treated non-operatively had excellent results, with no limitations of activity or changes in lifestyle. The 8 patients who were treated operatively had numerous problems, including noticeable scars, persistent instability, pain, or limitation of activity that resulted in an alteration in lifestyle. Moving on to the next question. Which of the following is true regarding anterior sternoclavicular joint dislocations? And the choices are 1. Reduction may result in tracheal injury. 2. They are usually stable following closed reduction. 3. They require fusion to hold the reduction. 4. They are rarely symptomatic when left unreduced. And 5. They should be treated acutely with medial clavicle excision. So from the Bicos article, quote, anterior sternoclavicular joint instability should primarily be treated conservatively. The patient should be informed that there is a high risk of persistent instability with non-operative or operative care, but that the persistent instability will be well tolerated and have little functional impact in the vast majority. Therefore, operative intervention for anterior sternoclavicular joint instability is mainly cosmetic in nature. So the correct answer to this question is 4. Anterior sternoclavicular joint dislocations are rarely symptomatic when left unreduced. Moving on to the next question. A 16-year-old male fell from a roof onto his right shoulder and presents with decreased pulses in his right upper extremity. 
Imaging reveals a posterior sternoclavicular dislocation. What is the best treatment at this time? And the choices are 1. Non-operative treatment with a sling and swath for 6 weeks. 2. Non-operative treatment with immediate active range of motion of the shoulder. 3. Close reduction in the emergency room. 4. Open reduction and pinning of his medial clavicular physial injury. And 5. Reduction in the operating room with thoracic surgery backup. So symptomatic acute posterior sternoclavicular dislocations in adolescents should undergo reduction with thoracic surgery backup. So the correct answer to this question is 5. Reduction in the operating room with thoracic surgery backup. If closed reduction is not successful, and in fact there's an inability to reduce in up to 75% of cases, then open reduction is indicated. In patients younger than age 20 to 25, this is usually a physeal injury, as the medial clavicular physis does not close until this age range. Chronic anterior dislocations are recommended to be treated conservatively, especially if not symptomatic. The review article by Worth and Rockwood notes the following complications with posterior dislocation respiratory distress, venous congestion or arterial insufficiency, brachial plexus compression, and myocardial conduction abnormalities. They recommend reconstruction of the costoclavicular ligaments with resection of the medial clavicular head as needed for unstable injuries. The article by Waters et al. noted 100% excellent short-term outcomes in adolescents with open reduction and reconstruction of the costoclavicular ligament in pure dislocations or with suture fixation of the medial physis in physeal injuries. And moving on to the final question for this topic, a 15-year-old boy sustained an anterior sternoclavicular joint dislocation. What is the preferred management? And the choices are 1. Open reduction and internal fixation, 2. Observation, 3. Closed reduction, 4. Closed reduction and percutaneous pinning, and 5. Figure of 8 brace. So we've basically already done a similar question, but just to drive the point home, the medial clavicular epiphysis is the last to fuse, that is, between ages 22 to 25 in men, and sternoclavicular injuries are often Salter-Harris type 2 fractures in this age group with opportunity to remodel. Closed reduction is generally not necessary and has a high recurrence rate. Close reduction is necessary with posterior dislocations associated with compression of the trachea, esophagus, or great vessels. Figure of 8 bracing has not been shown to secure a sternoclavicular reduction. So the correct answer to this question is a 15-year-old boy who sustained an anterior sternoclavicular joint dislocation should be managed with answer choice 2, observation. And moving on to the final topic for this review session of adult pyogenic vertebral osteomyelitis, the first question reads... A 53-year-old male presents 10-week status post a hemilaminectomy and microdiscectomy with increasing lower back pain for the last week. T1 sagittal MRI shows L5 to S1 with decreased marrow signal of adjacent vertebral end plates and disc space. It also shows an increased signal in the inferior L5 end plate, superior S1 end plate, and the disc space. The patient begins antibiotic therapy. Which of the following is the most sensitive in monitoring this patient's response to antibiotic therapy? And the choices are 1. Procalcitonin, 2. White blood cell count, 3. Blood cultures, 4. Erythrocyte sedimentation rate, and 5. C-reactive protein. So decreasing C-reactive protein levels are the most reliable method of tracking response to antibiotic treatment in vertebral osteomyelitis. Vertebral osteomyelitis occurs most commonly in the lumbar spine in adults in their 50s or 60s. Patients often present afebrile with negative blood cultures and a normal white blood cell count. Imaging helps narrow the diagnosis and biopsy can be performed to confirm an organism. 
If no organism is isolated and the patient is neurologically intact without gross instability, treatment with empiric antibiotics is indicated. Response to treatment is judged based on improvement in laboratory studies, specifically CRP, given its short half-life of 19 hours. So the correct answer to this question is 5, C-reactive protein. Mock et al. prospectively followed preoperative and postoperative CRP and ESR levels in 149 patients undergoing spinal surgery. They found no postoperative trend could be determined for ESR. However, CRP demonstrated a predictable rise and fall with deviations from expected kinetics correlating with infection. They conclude knowledge of normal CRP kinetics postoperatively may assist in the identification of infection. Cornette et al. reviewed bacterial spine infections with regard to pathophysiology, diagnosis, and treatment. They state that CRP levels are nonspecific but are more useful than ESR in monitoring therapy given shorter normalization time. They found that CRP and ESR are 98% and 100% sensitive, respectively. Moving on to the next question, amphotericin B is most appropriate for the treatment of which type of spine infection? And the choices are 1. Fungal osteomyelitis. 2. Bacterial osteomyelitis with a gram-positive organism. 3. Bacterial osteomyelitis with a gram-negative organism. 4. Tuberculosis osteomyelitis. And 5. Viral meningomyelitis. So amphotericin B would be the most appropriate for the treatment of fungal infections of the spine. So the correct answer to this question is 1. Fungal osteomyelitis. Amphotericin B is a broad-spectrum antifungal medication. It is commonly used as the first-line agent for treatment of fungal infections of the spine. The most common fungi involving the spine includes cryptococcus, candida, and aspergillus. The indications for debridement and stabilization with spinal fusion includes resistance to antibiotic therapy, spinal instability, and or neurologic deficits. Kim et al. reviewed fungal infections of the spine. They comment that fungus infections are most commonly spread by hematogenous or direct spread. Access to the vascular system may include intravenous lines, during implantation of prosthetic devices, or during surgery. Fraser et al. retrospectively reviewed 11 patients with fungal osteomyelitis of the spine. Nine of the patients were immunocompromised secondary to diabetes mellitus, corticosteroid use, chemotherapy for a tumor, or malnutrition. All were treated with antifungal medication. 10 of 11 patients were also treated with surgical debridement. Paralysis secondary to the spine infection developed in eight patients. After an average of 6.3 years of follow-up, the infection had resolved in all nine surviving patients. Moving on to the next question. A 45-year-old HIV-positive homeless man presents with increasing low back pain for the last three weeks. He now reports difficulty ambulating, fever, and loss of appetite. He denies bowel and bladder symptoms. He denies any symptoms radiating into his buttocks or legs. On physical exam, he is in obvious discomfort with standing, which worsens in the forward flexion position. He has a normal motor and sensory exam in his lower extremities. Blood cultures are performed, which come back negative. Lumbar radiograph shows a radiolucent lesion in L2 with mild loss of disc height of the L2-L3 level. T2-weighted MRI shows a lesion involving the L2-L3 disc space and extending into the L2 vertebral body. What would be the most next appropriate step in treatment? And the choices are 1. Broad-spectrum antibiotics, 2. Isoniazid, rifampin, and pyrazinamide therapy, 3. CT-guided biopsy with cultures, 4. Technetium bone scan, and 5. Anterior corpectomy with a retroperitoneal approach, struct grafting, and instrumentation. 
so the clinical presentation in this question stem is consistent with spondylodiscitis. Although the patient has risk factors for spinal tuberculosis, a CT-guided biopsy should be performed to establish a diagnosis. So the correct answer to this question is 3, CT-guided biopsy with cultures. There is an increasing incidence of TB in the United States due to the increasing immunocompromised population from HIV. 15% of patients with TB will have extrapulmonary involvement. 5% of all TB patients have spine involvement. With any type of spondylodiscitis, the infectious organism must be identified with blood cultures or a biopsy prior to initiating treatment. Ku et al. emphasized with the recent global pandemic of human immunodeficiency virus, the numbers of tuberculosis and secondary spondylitis cases is again increasing at an alarming rate. They report that medical treatment alone remains the cornerstone of therapy for the majority of POTS disease cases. Surgical intervention should be limited primarily to cases of severe or progressive deformity and or neurological deficit. Haji Pavlo et al. performed a retrospective study of 101 cases of spondylodiscitis. They found Staphylococcus aureus was the main organism. Infection elsewhere was the most common predisposing factor. Leukocyte counts were elevated in 42.6% of spondylodiscitis cases. The erythrocyte sedimentation rate was elevated in all cases of epidural abscess. And moving on to the final question for this topic. A 45-year-old female IV drug user presents to the emergency room with a chief complaint of severe focal low back pain that has progressed over the past 10 days. She now reports the pain is severe enough that it is difficult for her to walk. She reports night sweats, fluctuating fever, and a loss of appetite. Physical exam shows exquisite pain with flexion and extension of the lumbar spine. Routine urinalysis by the ER physician shows evidence of a urinary tract infection. Her blood leukocyte count is 12,600, and ESR is 78 millimeters per hour. A lateral radiograph is highly suspicious of vertebral osteomyelitis of the lumbar spine. Which of the following would be the most appropriate next step in treatment? And the choices are 1. Discharge from the ER with a course of oral antibiotics. 2. Admission to the hospital with empirical IV antibiotics. 3. Admission, blood cultures, and MRI of the lumbar spine with and without gadolinium. 4. Nuclear medicine bone scan and 5. Renal ultrasound. So the clinical presentation is highly suspicious of vertebral osteomyelitis of the lumbar spine. An MRI of the lumbar spine with and without gadolinium is the most appropriate next step in management. Due to the prevalence of back pain in the general population, it is a sensitive but not specific marker of spinal infection. To avoid missing this entity with high morbidity, it is important to look for red flags such as elevated inflammatory parameters, that is ESR or CRP, tenderness to vertebral palpation, fever, chills, and weight loss. Carigy reviewed 111 patients with pyogenic vertebral osteomyelitis unrelated to spinal procedures and found that risk factors included diabetes and other immune-compromised states. The average age was 60, and the most common hematogenous source for infection was the urinary tract. That's all for this question review session about sternoclavicular dislocation and adult pyogenic vertebral osteomyelitis. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.